Hi, everybody. Michael Davis here, and welcome to Bone to Pick. We are coming to you today from Brooklyn, New York. And it's really been a pleasure doing all these interviews of the past four or five years. And I can honestly say I've not looked forward to any of them as much as today. Um, our artist of the month for the month of October is the great Rob Mounsey. Rob is a six-time Grammy nominee. He is a, to put it understatedly, it's a wildly successful studio musician, uh, both as a pianist, arranger, producer, conductor. Uh, he has worked with a myriad of artists, and I'll name just a few of them to get rolling. James Taylor, Rihanna, Aaron Neville, Michael Franks, Carly Simon, Natalie Cole, Diana Krall, Steely Dan, Paul Simon, Chaka Khan, Eric Clapton, Madonna, Diana Ross, Donald Fagan, Brian Wilson, Karen Carpenter, Adina Menzel, and that's just to, uh, just to name a few. Uh, he was the keyboardist on the very famous Simon and Garfunkel 1981 concert in the park, live concert in Central Park. Uh, as a solo artist, he is a founding member of the band Joe Cool. Uh, he's also released records on his own label, the Flying Monkey Orchestra, which included uh, Mango Theory and Back in the Pool. Uh, he has uh, recorded a couple of CD projects with the great Steve Kahn, great guitarist here in New York. Uh, he has composed for a, a number of film and television projects, including Mike Nichols' Working Girl, uh, Animal House, the HBO uh, hit series Sex in the City. Uh, he has won a couple of uh, Emmy Awards uh, for themes for Guiding Light. Uh, he has recorded hundreds of jingles uh, as an arranger, composer, and a piano player. And I have to say, uh, I've been very fortunate throughout my career to, to get to work for Rob. And uh, I think I speak for the entire uh, musical community in New York. Whenever you get a call from Rob Mouncey, you, uh, you want to bring your A game because you know it's going to be something special. So, uh, Rob, thank you so much for in inviting us into your beautiful home and uh, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to be wow. with us. Thank, thank you so much. I, I hope I can live up to all of that uh, build-up. Uh, who is that guy? <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. That, that, um, and that list was just scratching the surface. It was like, no, I, well, tried hey, to pare hey, it down. It was like, your resume was like reading the New Testament. I had to like, <laughs> bear well, it down. But, thanks. Too, too kind, as yeah. usual. Well, um, let's, why don't we just start, I know you were uh, very musical as a, as a young person, a very young person. Maybe you could talk about growing up on, in Ohio and Seattle and uh, just kind of what led you uh, into the, the world that uh, you've created. Well, it's, geez, I've told these stories a few times. I don't want to be boring. Um, uh, you know, I, I thought as a, as a kid, I kind of really wanted to be a, a painter. I actually wanted to be a visual artist of some kind. I always you know, like to draw and paint and stuff. And, um, I, I got into uh, music a little, a little later, as about 11 years old. And um, it was kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of an accident. The, the older I get, the, the less I want to try to impose order on chaos and try to think of, try to find patterns that might not even be there. But, um, I uh, have a, an older sister who's eight years older. Hi, Margaret, if you're out there. <laughs> um, who uh, was in college when I was, uh, you know, about 11. And had a music appreciation class where students were learning to follow scores. They weren't musicians, but they were learning to kind of follow along in scores when they listened to classical music. And I thought that's kind of a cool thing to do. I think, still think that's kind of life-enriching mm -hmm. uh, exercise. And so I inherited a couple of those little green Kalmus miniature orchestra scores. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of them was uh, Mozart Jupiter Symphony in C. And the other one 
was completely different. It was Berlioz's Fantastic Symphony, mm. which when it's like this, you know, and there are about <laughs> 35 lines on the score, I probably couldn't even see it now. Um, that's, really, that's really something to see the uh, paint pot orchestration and every, every instrument known to man. Um, that's actually how I learned to read music. We had a little electric organ in the house, little one manual electric organ. Later on, there was a, an organ with two manuals and some pedals. I still like reach for bass notes with my left foot sometimes <laughs> from that. But I would just sit with the scores and read through, you know, read the violin part through the whole symphony, read the viola part, alto clef, read the cello part, and I actually learned to read music that way. And uh, there were some other bits of there's some piano music and some various sheet music around. Um, so I was, you know, it was really, it was really, it was a strange way to start. I really felt like I wanted to be Stravinsky. I mean, that was my, kind of my point of view. You know, mm -hmm. later on, so many musicians I know, they had, they had garage bands, you know, they wanted to, they played Satisfaction in the, in the, in the garage or whatever, but, um, I was looking at those scores, and I, I loved the way that they looked. That was part of it. It was not all just the music, but it, I loved the way that they looked pictorially. They were like these mysterious diagrams of <laughs> some other world, you know? They stood for music and sound, but they were beautiful looking, and I was fascinated. And I, and I saw, well, you know, strings at the bottom, percussion, harp in the middle, Woodwinds at the top, brass below that, and I thought, well, you know, this is not. I could think I could figure out how to do this. Nobody was teaching me. Um, my family was not; uh, they were not musicians. My my dad always claimed to be tone deaf. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure anybody's really quite tone deaf, but that's what he claimed to be. And uh, my mother liked to sing, and the hi mom <laughs> liked to sing in church. Um, but no musicians. Then, you know, I sent away for uh, Rimsky-Korsakov's orchestration manual, which I think is around here somewhere. Principles of Orchestration by Rimsky-Korsakov, great, great manual. And, you know, Walter Piston's harmony and stuff. And um, so, I, you know, I was a very kind of little music nerd, little skinny little kid with glasses, you know, trying to figure out how to do this stuff. Nobody's teaching me or helping me. It's all kind of self-taught mostly. Um, that was a strange way to, to start. And I, then I, you know, got some manuscript paper and some sharpened some pencils and just started doing it. And fortunately, nobody was around who was willing to say, oh, you, that's too hard, you can't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you have to go to conservatory to do that. Nobody can do that without being taught how. You can't, there, nobody was saying that, so I was just doing it. I'm sure my parents were looking at me thinking, is he actually doing it or is he just making these dots? <laughs> they didn't have any way of knowing. I'd probably wonder myself if I were in their place. Uh, but then I started, you know, sending stuff away to state competitions and getting, you know, top marks and stuff, even though it was pretty terrible. Um, so it, clearly I, I was doing it. Um, so that was the, I mean, that was the beginning for me. A big part of that for me when I started was, um, you know, it's 
for me, it's very pictorial and it's very visual. I guess that's what you would call synesthesia. But, you know, when you're working on a record or an arrangement or a, you know, the production of a recording, I feel uh, the colors and the weights. You know, you feel, you're looking at a picture and you feel width and you feel depth and you feel like the bottom and the top and you feel different colors. If you're mixing a record, which I don't really do, I'm mixing, you know, Mixing mix engineers are a very special breed of people, and that's a really tough thing to do. But when you're you're mixing, you're very carefully uh, feeling the weights of all these different elements. You know, it's a little bit like like cooking too. Mm -hmm. That's another great metaphor. Yeah. You know, there are times when you're making a recording, and there's one fabulously great ingredient. And it's so special, you don't want anything to interfere with it. And then other times, it's this big, it's this big soup. <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of stuff in it, and you can put a lot of stuff in it, and you know. Yeah, that's. And uh, everything's just balanced, but there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, very cool. I'm not surprised to hear your the, the width of your approach because it's clearly the way you approach music, and and part of your brilliance comes from that. Mm -hmm. um, well, maybe we're continuing on, talk a little bit about your time. I know you went to Berkeley College of Music and were there in the, in the early 70s, an amazing time. So many great, great musicians were there. What was uh, that experience like for you? That's, it was a great place then. It's a great place now. Um, um, John Schofield and I were, were there at the same time. Mm. We got to know each other a little bit then. I haven't seen him much since then. But uh, um, it was it was a wonderful place. It had some wonderful teachers, including the the uh, legendary Herb Pomeroy, who of course, yeah. was um, uh, you know a, a writing teacher who really really opened up the the heads of the students uh, in an amazing way. He had it, it was amazing how he took what he knew and he made a curriculum out of it somehow. And he would have a few dozen rules that you would learn and then you could break them when you wanted to, but you absorbed so much just knowing what those rules are even when you don't obey them, you know. <laughs> um, this, uh, Berkeley was a wonderful place and I think for one one of the big reasons was that you learned so much from the other students. There were mm -hmm. a lot of great students from all over the world. Um, really very, very impressive. Um, big, big, big talents from the students. So, you know, half of what you, half of what you get is in the classroom from the teachers sure. and the other half is from being with these students who are just, uh, you know, on fire. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic walking down the hall, walking by the practice rooms, hearing people uh, doing their thing. It's wow. You yeah. could, like you, with an infrared camera, you could see it from space. It's like this glowing, <laughs> glowing blot of like musical energy, you know, it's just fantastic. Yeah, it seems like, you know, that's these, these super fine institutions like Berkeley, but that's, you get so much out of being around the other students. Um, well, I think you told me one time about how you 
got from Berkeley and uh, how Liam Pandarvis, I believe, was mm -hmm. instrumental in getting you to New York. Oh, but I was yeah. wondering if you could talk about that transition. And you were kind enough to mention the Dorsey Band uh, before oh, we started wow. the interview. So maybe you could talk a little bit about those if you if you don't mind. Sure. Wow. Well, you know, toward the end of my my school years there, I took a semester off, and I wasn't really sure I was going to graduate. I wasn't sure I was going to bother. I, I, I went back and graduated to make my parents happy, really. But um, took a semester off, and somebody mentioned uh, going with this, out with this band on a bus. It, you know, joined the, the Dorsey, Tommy Dorsey band for a... Actually, I was there for a month. I was, I was 21 years old. Um, and uh, I was on the band for two weeks. I gave my two weeks notice. I couldn't. I could not take it. And you know, the whole band is 21 years old. The leader is a, a really great guy named Murray McEachran, who was a alto sax and trombone player, actually. Rare devil. And uh, uh, worked with Benny Goodman back in the old days. And he was about 75. All the kids are about 21. He picked up a singer friend of his named Tony Roma on the road somewhere. He was also about 75. And there are a couple guys in the reed section. They're about 45. And, you know, we're looking at them thinking, do I want to be doing this <laughs> when I'm 45? You know? The answer was not really yeah. that positive. <laughs> Really, it was, it's tough, though. I mean, you know, it's, we slept on the bus. It's all one-nighters. Yeah. It's all, you know, over, what, what do you call them, hit and runs. Yeah. You know, hit it, get back on the bus, sleep on the floor. Yeah. It, it's, it's rough. When you're 21, you can do it. Yeah. We always used to joke on Buddy's band that they'd flip the side of the bus open and bring a hose and just hose us yeah, down see, and then right. go to the next gig. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, you, you must you must have a lot of stories about the about the Buddy Rich uh, oh, yeah. harangues. Well, that's a, a whole set of them. But uh, yeah. But well, I, we appreciate you sharing that, Rob. And and maybe we could talk about how you got to New York then, and then yeah. following that time, and then and Leon Pendarvis and his yeah. influence in that well, regard. Well, Pendarvis is my is my my godfather. I mean, he made everything happen for me. I never see him anymore. Pen, are you out there? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll, I'll call you. I promise. He's he's a fantastic musician and a wonderful guy. Um, I you know I, I wasn't that ambitious. It's about 1975. I was kicking around Boston. I played with some singers. I you know I backed up some singers. I did I did weddings. I played in bars and um, and uh, I was I was in a band with a with a local singer in Boston named Ralph Graham. Ralph Graham was kind of a. Um, it's kind of a, uh, he, wrote, he wrote his own material. He's kind of a uh, very dramatic, emotional kind of R&B singer. Um, and he was very popular there. We had a band with something like three keyboard players. We had like, I think we had two Mellotrons on stage at some point trying to play string parts, <laughs> which is just a nightmare in itself, the Mellotron. Um, but anyway, we were playing some. We were playing kind of a, a dive, terrible place out in Worcester, Massachusetts. Sawdust on the floor, stale beer, kind of. The less said, the better, maybe. And uh, and he had gotten Ralph had gotten signed to RCA in New York. And this was early '76, I think. And, and they 
they tapped uh, Leon Pendarvis to produce the record, who traveled up to Worcester, Massachusetts to hear the singer and told him afterwards, uh, yes, I'd like to produce your record. Um, don't bring your band. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll use New York guys that I know. And then he, he reconsidered and he said something like, if you want, you can bring that kid on the end. <laughs> that's awesome. Which is, that's, you know, kind of changed everything for me. Yeah. I was the kid on the end and uh, with the Mellotron and the Arp Odyssey, neither of which belonged to me. They were borrowed from someone. Uh, and I don't know why, I, I, to this day, I'm not sure why he picked me out. Uh, that's awesome. He obviously heard something that he just... I guess. So I, I traveled down on Amtrak in my Birkenstocks, you know, <laughs> to uh, work on the record in the summer of 76 at RCA Studios on 44th Street, which is now gone for a long time. And I met all my buddies, Will Lee, Steve Gadd, George Young, both of the Breckers, um, and worked with all these people. It was fantastic. You know, it was... Uh, really exciting. And then uh, he asked me to write a couple of arrangements for the record, which I did. And then uh, at the end of that whole experience, and I didn't mess up apparently <laughs> at any point, and he said, uh, you know, you should really move down here. If you do, I'll book you on some of my dates, play second keyboards on my dates. And he was producing stuff for uh, Roberta Flack and um, Sissy Houston, Whitney's mom, and uh, other people. So uh, I moved down on my birthday in December of 76, which is uh, 40 years ago this December. Mm. So, you, you know, you can all do the math. <laughs> um, and that's uh, and that's what happened. And, you know, then I was, you know, I was very busy from about 77 on um, and started working a lot as, as an arranger and um, started doing some commercials. I met my friend uh, Elliot Shiner. Uh, he introduced me to the guys in Steely Dan. And I met uh, Phil Ramone. Mm. Um, and this kind of became kind of, you know, one of the first call arrangers for Phil Ramone for about 35 years, till till Phil left us a couple of years ago. Yeah. So. Um, well, maybe you could, if you don't, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about um, the, your work with Steely Dan. I know you did work on such an incredible project, Gaucho. It was one of the seminal recordings still, still to this day. Yeah. Um, how was it? What kind of an influence did uh, they have on you? And I know you worked on Nightfly with Donald, and right. maybe, maybe how that, uh, how that affected you working with those guys. Well, that was it. Was a it was a big influence. It's it's you know it's very it's very well known you know people have told so many stories about those sessions and they're they're famously um, famously meticulous about the perfection of every little overdub mm -hmm. um, and it's you know it sounds sometimes a little maddening or crazy but you know that the musicians that were on those dates I don't remember any of them really being unhappy about it because we knew how great the stuff was mm -hmm. loved the songs loved the whole the whole experience i mean it was difficult and sometimes 
you could lose your mind because they weren't happy and you weren't sure what you were doing wrong <laughs> it, because it was so subtle, whatever it was. Uh, it, was it was great to, to get there. You know, my, my favorite moment was doing the uh, horn arrangement for Babylon Sisters, which is a really uh, interesting group. Like he wanted like the two bass clarinets. You hear the bass clarinets playing the fifth bump. Uh, 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 it's, it's George Marge and Wally Kane, those two guys. But then there's alto flute, there's one trumpet, there's alto and two tenors, and there's a flugel. Or I, don't, I don't remember how it went. It was like a funny group. Would you believe I do not have any of those scores? Oh, I didn't wow. save them. I, wow. I didn't know. I didn't, we didn't know. Like, I, I, we, didn't, we didn't know it was going to be this iconic record that everybody knows about. It was just, it was just a, day's, a day's work. But we did run down that arrangement for Babylon Sisters, and Donald was out in the room with me, reading the score with me and listening to it. And the track ends, and he turned around, and he looked inside into the booth at Gary Katz, and he said, it's perfect. <laughs> and he didn't change anything. Didn't change a note of it, which was, that was pretty nice. Because that didn't happen that often, you know. There was usually something. Oh, that's awesome. Do you remember who the other uh, horn players were on that session? Oh, I can't remember. I think Randy Brecker was there. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm pretty sure he was. I'm sorry, I don't remember. Such a so great track. You, you still hear it quite often. Yeah. You know, very I happen to be very, very proud of 11 notes. There's this great little thing right before, I think it's Randy playing a trumpet solo with a plunger. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of a one bar, there's a one bar transition where the tenors play the triplets. Right? I, I worked on those 11 notes, I think, for about three hours because I knew what I wanted, I knew I wanted to feel like really left-handed, like the accents falling in funny spots. And it was, it really took a while. So, well, three hours for those 11 notes. But every time <laughs> I hear it, I think, yes, that's what I was, that's what I was going for. And that's like a great little moment. And of course, Donald loved it when he heard it, so. That's uh, the highest of praise right there, right? <laughs> yeah. right. I mean, it's really fun for me to hear you to describe your yeah. process because, you know, yeah. I, I know I speak for all our horn players that get to play your charts. It always feels like there's like, this is not just writing down the notes that this or there's like, a, there's a feeling that comes out of your, your writing. And yeah, I hope so. It's, it's very cool to hear you talk about it. I was wondering if you could, one of the things that, that is always amazing me about you is I feel like if somebody called you today and said, I need something that sounds like Mahler tomorrow afternoon, you could do that. If they said, I need something that sounds just like James Brown track, or if somebody yeah. said, I need a, a Neil Hefty uh, Basie chart. Can you talk about, um, yeah. I mean, it's one thing to be versatile. It's another thing to do all of those things at the level that you do, which is the yeah. highest level. Well, um, how did you, how did, or how, how would you uh, look at, at uh, how you develop that level of versatility? Wow. The Mahler, I'd have to do some homework. <laughs> the James Brown thing I feel good about. Okay, barely else. How about that? <laughs> I don't know. The James Brown I feel good about, and the Neil Hefty I feel great about. I love that stuff madly. Um, the Mahler, I'd have to work at it. But, I, you know, I don't know. It's, um, I, that is the idea that 
that, that was always an important goal for me, to be very versatile. And, uh, you know, I think it, it really, um, it's really about, it's, it's just really about listening. Mm. And, and very few people listen very well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> very, very few people really know how to listen. And, you know, in order to, to really listen well, uh, I think you need to pursue, I'm getting real mystical now. <laughs> you need to be able to uh, pursue this kind of emptiness. I mean, you have to, like, drop all these mental concepts and mental objects and just experience something, mm. you know. It's very difficult, I think, especially for younger musicians who do this, who are just starting out, it's very difficult to step all the way back and experience it the way that the audience does, that has never heard it before. Might be a might be a music-loving audience. It might be a you know very blasé audience that you're trying to impress. But um, to be able to step all the way back is really difficult. If you're going all the way into the details, um, that's very hard for people when when they're, for example, mixing, as we were talking about. Mm -hmm. right? You start hearing details, and all you can hear are the details. You can't hear anything else. You really can't hear it. Mm -hmm. That's why you have to take the, what we call the sanity stroll, <laughs> to walk away. Mm -hmm. Walk away really for 20 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. Because your nervous system has to change. Hmm. Not, it isn't, we, we say it's the ears, it's, it's the ears part of the brain that has to change. Am I making any mm -hmm. sense with this question? Yeah. But, um, um, you know, as far as getting those different styles, I mean, I, you know, I love all those different styles. I'm a big James Brown fan and a huge fan of that Neil Hefty bassy stuff, which I like, adore that stuff. <laughs> My favorite is uh, Sinatra and the Basie band doing Please, Please Be Kind. Mm -hmm. yeah. Man, what a, a great... It, there's absolutely nothing extra in the arrangement. Nothing. And it's so perfect. It swings like mad. The band sounds great. Uncle Frank is killing it. <laughs> you know, the kid from Red Bank, like, does his patented stuff, which is perfect. What a great record that is. I've, I've listened to that a couple hundred times in the last couple yeah. of years. You, you know it well, yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, so, the, the best, but Neil Hefty at his best, who was a trumpet player from Nebraska, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I thought it was very well said, uh, what you were talking about. It's something to... Uh, to really think about. Um, from a more, I guess, technical is the word, technical standpoint, and I'm sure this varies from project to project, of course, but I was curious as to what you get, especially from an arranging standpoint, um, what you're given from, from a producer, from an artist. Um, I know I had the great fortune, one of my favorite sessions in my entire life was working for you for the James Taylor, last mm -hmm. James Taylor uh, project. And yeah, I'm fun. sure, I was curious as to what, maybe what James would give you or, or or what you would get from Phil when, when yeah. Phil was doing all these projects. It just, it, yeah. And I'm sure, it like I said, I'm sure it varies, but I was curious as to what. It varies a lot. From Phil, I got very little, a few mm -hmm. words. Mm -hmm. 
um, James said to me he had that song Stretch of the Highway. I mm. don't know if you remember two trombones, Absolutely. two trombones, two tenors, and Barry, right? And he said, you know, I'm kind of going for that Steely Dan thing. I said, mm. okay, <laughs> uh, I know what that is. You can do this. <laughs> yeah, right. So, that's, so you came to the right place. He said, I know, that's why. Um, and, and at the end of that song, there's a long outro where he's just kind of doing some ad-libs and there are a couple background vocals things. And so the horn section kind of goes through a little, little catalog of different ideas. You know, mm -hmm. there's a little parade of ideas, which I thought was really fun. And they're all there on the record. Um, and for something like that, um, you know, I don't play any brass instruments. I got to start. Like, what, what should I start with? I think you're fine, Rob, without it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, to play, to play one, you know, like... I, I used to play, I was a kind of a mediocre clarinetist, and I, I learned a little saxophones and some flutes. I can get a kind of a decent sound on the flute, but what I like to do when I'm writing that stuff, like on Stretch of the Highway, is sort of is listen to the track and sort of stand up and walk around and go like this. <laughs> Seriously. Like, and just kind of, like, what it, would it be like to play on stage, you know? What if the guys were standing up and just grooving along to it? And you start to hear and feel stuff, you just don't feel them or hear them when you're sitting down with a pencil in your hand. Mm. It's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. you, know, get, like, you get up and go like this and like stuff starts to come out. And you also start to really feel how it, it can never get in the singer's way. But the singer's going to leave some spaces, you know. It can be kind of involved as long as it doesn't step on him. Um, I guess we're circling around the same question, but it's, it's about, you know, it's about listening and feeling, and it's not, you know, it's just not always about something that's terribly cerebral or methodical. Mm -hmm. I've always thought, I mean, that, for those of you who haven't heard that track, it's Stretch of the Highway, it's, it's, I mean, to me, your arrangement, it's a beautiful tune, of course, and James sounds it's a great incredible. Tune. But your arrangement, to me, takes it from really great to incredibly special. And, and I think it's funny that you would say that about playing a horn, because from our perspective as horn players, it's so natural. It just feels like, wow, yeah. this is just the, this, is, this is what I would play if I that's an important, had your mind. <laughs> that's an important part of it. Donald, Donald used to say to me, you know, I could do this, but it would take me a month and it takes you half an hour. So I, will you do it? Um, and that's, you know, that's why it's important for guys like me, for you to send, for you to send me your Bone Town CD, a yellow CD with a... Oh, Bone Alone with the, bone the trombones, yeah. With the trombones, yeah. because, man, we need to remember... Listen to the instrument from guys who really, really play it and what all that stuff it can do. You forget, <laughs> oh, it can do all this different stuff. Oh, man. Because, you know, maybe a young arranger would think, oh, the trombones, it's like, you know, you know, when the, in the orchestra, when the strings are all bowing their heads off and the trumpets are blasting and you still want it to be louder, <laughs> send the trombones in because they'll blow the whole orchestra <laughs> off stage and they can play so loud but then like what about like when they play trombone choir and it's really soft it's so beautiful yeah, you know what i mean yeah. it's so pretty um you need to remember all the stuff they can do uh, so when i was out with the dina menzel doing a lot of orchestra concerts we spent 
a lot of time with the late, uh, the late great Marvin Hamlish, who was a mm. wonderful, wonderful guy. And he, I got a nice compliment from him one time because I had written her whole orchestra book. And it's, he was going through one of these quick rehearsals. You get three hours of rehearsal and you hit it, you know. And he said, you know, I put these charts up and they play. And that was it. But like that was a really nice compliment because that's the idea. You have only three hours of rehearsal. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the players, the instrumentalists look at it and they should, they should kind of like sort of recognize it. They say, oh yeah, this is a part for me, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a trombonist says, yes, this is a trombone part. This makes me sound good, makes me look good. This is why I have practiced for decades to sound great. So I can do like this. Um, and there's enough to dig into. There's enough that's involved that they can dig into it. But it's not so crazy. It needs too much rehearsal time, which you never get. Mm -hmm. they, they face a lot of terrible arrangements. The pops orchestras. Oh, I can Terrible imagine. stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, people coming in with eight and a half by eleven sheets of paper. There aren't enough of them to go around, and they're all whole notes, and it's like a big keyboard up there. <laughs> and it's and they and they cop an attitude right away. The orchestra yeah. does. They all look unhappy, and they say, "Why are we here? Get a sampler and one guy." Right. Right. Um, so they're they're really happy when they see stuff that really is for them, mm -hmm. and it lays right for them, and it makes them sound good. Absolutely. I mean, I think. Uh... I think that's part of your your uh, brilliance, really, is the word. But you you make the instruments sound good without pushing them to the limit, you know. And I think really, the, yeah. the, the arrangement has such uh, quality and texture to it that it doesn't demand that it be the the absolute best player who's ever played that instrument to pull it off. You know, it's yeah. it's it's, it's yeah. playable by a, a large number of, uh, uh, yeah. you know, professional ability players. Sometimes but. I'm afraid that's why I never win any of those arranging Grammys. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the, the ones that tend to win are the, are the ones that, are, it's like, I, sometimes I really don't like them because the, I mean, they're good, but they're really show-offy and mm -hmm. the, the arrangements are crowding the singer they're upstaging the star. Mm. Not good. Mm. <laughs> Not good. Yeah. I mean, people, the average music lover should be able to listen to the singer, feel like it's a great experience, never think about the arrangement. But it's great support. And one of those guys, I think maybe it was Nelson Riddle or one of those old lions, said, it's really not enough to write a good arrangement of a song that a singer can sing with this. The hard thing is to write the right arrangement for that artist mm. and know who that artist is mm -hmm. and support that artist the right way, the personality of that person. You and I just did that great, this great project with Brett Eldridge. Yeah, fantastic. Great project. young uh, Nashville star, wonderful guy Amazing. who did a swinging big band Christmas record. It's called Glow. Every home should have one. At least one. Um, at least one. Say two, just in case you get the car. Uh, released know? soon. <laughs> great record. Uh, lead trombone. <laughs> and uh, great stuff. But, you know, we didn't have much time. Uh, and I co-produced with my friend Jay Newland, the engineer. And we got Brett to fly up and sit with us for an afternoon, sing through a few songs, play the piano, try some different keys. He breaks out the bottle of bourbon, <laughs> pours everybody a finger or two of that. 
But that meant so much. Just sitting with him, we didn't really know him, but sitting with him, listen, not just listening to him sing, but just hanging out. Mm -hmm. You get to, uh, like a feeling of who somebody is as a performer. And then, then you, like, I felt like I had, I knew who that guy was. And I knew how, you know, I knew what the feeling of the thing was. Mm. You really wanted to do this Rat Pack Christmas thing. And you know, it has a little bit of a brash quality, a little bit of a bluesy thing. And I, you know, he had a ball. We all had so much fun. I think it worked great. Oh, it was an incredible experience. Yeah, yeah so much was, fun. Yeah. How, how, how much time did you have like once, once you met in the, before the... Uh, uh, a couple of weeks. Wow. There's a lot, of, a lot of charts. Uh, about 13, I think. Might have been two and a half weeks. That's, that's a little tight. <laughs> um, I, I did uh, 14 big orchestra arrangements for, for Adina Menzel when we started doing her Pops orchestra stuff. And this was mm. for the big orchestras, for like, you know, woodwinds and threes and 11 brass and all that. Mm -hmm. And I had, I had about 14 days to do 14 of those, which was, I was pushing it. I was, a, I was a little spiral-like, <laughs> but it worked, you know? That's for sure. Um, yeah, and, and you know, she's, she's another very special personality because she's got this big, big, big instrument, and it's very dramatic, mm -hmm. and it's very emotional, and her fans go completely berserk for her. Yeah. But she's somebody who, you know, when the 11 brass in the St. Louis Symphony are hitting it at double forte, she can get in front of it. Yeah. And it works great. And it's just, holy smoke, <laughs> what's happening? You know? Well, uh, if we can shift gears a little bit, I'd like to spend some time talking about your solo career, which, uh, um, you know, encompasses more uh, from a compositional standpoint, as well as from a pianistic standpoint, of course, arranging and producing as well. Um, one of the first bands that I heard when I moved to New York uh, in the 80s was uh, Joe Cool, and you guys would play at McKell's. And for those of you who don't know Joe Cool, uh, it was an all-star band. It was Rob on keyboards, Willie on bass, Chris Parker on drums, and Jeff Marinoff on guitar. So mm -hmm. basically the best of the best mm -hmm. on every instrument uh, in New York. And, uh, and uh, loved that band. I know you guys did one recording with that and some, a Japanese tour. and. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, you did uh, Mango Theory and uh, Back in the Pool yeah. on... Back in the Pool was first. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And maybe you could talk about, I know the work you did with Steve Kahn, maybe you could just talk about, about uh, how you like doing the solo career thing and how, that, how that's yeah. uh, evolved over the years. I'm not sure career is the right... <laughs> career is pushing it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a, I'm not sure what it was. <laughs> Well, Alan, we've made some great records, let's put it that way. Yeah, Alan, Alan Watts in his autobiography said, I don't, I don't want a career, I want a careen. <laughs> and that's, that's I, you know, I feel like that's kind of what I, I have had. I, I don't really, I was never kind of career ambitious or career oriented. I was, you know, kind of distrusted that word a little bit. Mm. Um, before Joe Cool, I have to mention uh, a band called Usson with George Young, led mm. by the great George Young. Mm -hmm. That was the greatest. I, I loved Joe Cool and I loved being with those guys. They're all my buddies. But um, Usson was probably the greatest 
performing band that I was ever part of. Wow. That was around 78, 79. Mm. We used to play at a, at a bar called Eric up on 2nd Avenue. Mm. 2nd Avenue and 88th, every two weeks. Led by George Young, who for people who do not know, was maybe one of the greatest reed players of all time. Multi, hi Georgie, multi-instrumental <laughs> saxophonist, woodwinds, uh, like will we'll play a, you know, a world-beating solo on piccolo, the alto flute, for, you know, forget it, anything. And um, our, our late friend Lou Soloff, who uh, I know you did an interview with, I just, uh, I was, you know, I was going to watch it. It just still hurts too much to lose mm. that guy. He was yeah. really a close friend of mine. Um, it really hurt to lose him like that. Yeah, so. Um, but George and Lewis together in that band, again with Will, uh, percussionist Jimmy Malin, who's not with us anymore. The original drummer is Barry Lazarowitz. Um, and I wrote a lot of tunes for that band, some far out kind of stuff, but they were very popular and um, people, I, with the two of them, with George and Lewis, um, it got to be, it got so, when we would do three sets a night, and, and it got like so unbelievably exciting, the band got to be so, was having so much fun. Somebody would play like one rhythmic figure and the next time around everybody would jump on it and <laughs> slam it. <laughs> Because everybody heard it the first time. We would do a lot of stuff like that, and it got so exciting. People would jump up on the tables and scream and not know where they were. I mean, people went crazy. It was, it, that was a thing that maybe it, maybe it just happened once, and it can only happen once. But that mm. was. Then there was Joe Cool with my friends, um, and we, we did a Japanese record, and we actually toured Japan. We, we toured a lot of cities in Japan. Um, and somebody, I think it was uh, Ron Goldstein, who was a record executive, was with a little label called Private Music, and he, he suggested that I make a, a solo record of electronic music. So I made one piece, and it was called, uh, which one was first? It's either a piece called Mr. Graffito or a piece called Green Feathers. I forget. And I sent one. And they said, do you have any other material? And I thought that was a funny question. I, I said, I am material. I, like, <laughs> I made another few more. And then they turned it down. But somebody else picked it up, a little label in Milwaukee. And so I had this record called Dig, which was all, it was all me. Mm -hmm. It was all electronic music. And that was not really a happy experience. I left that, those people. Mm. Then I made the record um, Back in the Pool. Mm -hmm. It, on which I had a lot of guests. Yeah, Lou and George both. Lou quite a bit and on that, right? George and Toots, the late Toots mm. Thielmans, my my friends Will and Christopher and Jeffrey Nirnoff, Steve Kahn is on it. Mm -hmm. um, there was that one that did okay, um, and then I made another one called called Mango Theory after that. Um, Which one is the one with orange thing on it? That's on Back in the back Pool. Back in the Pool. I love that. I like the orange thing. Yeah. It's not about any presidential candidates. <laughs> this was years ago. It's 20, God, it's 25 years ago? Something like that. It's 1990. Mm. Something like that. 
Um, they were fun. They were fun. I'm, I, I get the occasional fan email from like some guy in Denmark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that record. So thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and you did the, it was Local Color you did with Steve. Kahn, local right? Color, that, yeah. You got a Grammy nomination for that, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yes, we, we were Grammy nominated as a New Age album, which Steve thought was very, very funny. <laughs> See, we were not aware we had made a New Age record. I, I, apparently we had. Um, and that was Steve's idea, and Steve just, you know, he had sort of a, his own process of, uh, you know, we would kind of get together and we would sort of jam and, like, record these long jams and pick stuff out and then try to structure them. And a little bit like Salvador Dali's paranoid critical method, you know. <laughs> Salvador Dali said, I have the paranoid critical method. First, I go nuts, and I do a bunch of crazy, nutty stuff, and then I become sane, and I evaluate the crazy things I did. So it was a little bit like that. And that's how a lot of that stuff happened. Well, and then the second one was uh, called You Are Here, which was about 10 years later. Mm -hmm. For those of you who don't know, these records we were just describing definitely worth checking out. I have them all, mm -hmm. and uh, really still go back and check them out. They're uh, they're fantastic so, records. So you're the guy. Um, <laughs> so you're the guy that bought these records. I'm gonna. We were talking before the interview started about about New York and Los Angeles, and I kind of wanted to combine this into one. Maybe it's too big of a question, but one big question. Hmm. And you know, I know you started off as a paper and pencil guy for a better oh, yeah. way to put it. And now, you know, your, your technical chops are at the wazoo any already now. But I was wondering if you could kind of talk about, uh, you know, not only how the technology, of course, has evolved, we all know that, but what are the advantages? And I think there are some disadvantages that that has, has gone away from paper and pencil. Mm -hmm. I was curious your thoughts about that. And then maybe tie that into, you know, now we're looking at the, how the scene has evolved, and certainly New York is one scene, and Los Angeles is another scene. They're, they're evolving in a parallel way, but also different ways, and maybe if you could, I know it's a kind of a lot to throw out there, but just your thoughts on yeah. those type of things. Well, about the actual writing, I'm, I'm, I'm really not happy right now. Because <laughs> I can't quite figure out what the process is anymore. Mm. It used to be for me, everything would be the big paper and the 18-inch ruler and, uh, you know, half a dozen sharpened pencils and kind of have a piano nearby so you don't get too lost mm. and make, you know, make the big bar lines. And I'd spend, you know, a long time just laying out these pages, have a little sketch on manuscript paper of, like, rehearsal letters and bar numbers because every single musician has to have every bar numbered. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very important. And rehearsal letters that make total sense. Right. You know. And then I, you know, I'd lay this out and then I'd be, you know, I'd have all this written out. Now, when I was doing five years ago, six years ago, when I started doing Adina stuff, I was still doing that. Um, and I would take it to a printer who scanned it and emailed it. To a copyist. Hi, Todd. Um, just shout outs to my friends. Um, copyist who would enter it into finale, then make the scores and the parts and stuff that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I go way back to, you know, guys with osmoroid pens and they're all alcoholics and they're like, 
That was that was another world. Yeah. But now, um, you know, the budgets don't really allow for copyists. I, you know, I I put I I type stuff into Sibelius. So now I'm kind of making these sketches of six or eight staves where I decide where stuff goes, and I don't really flesh it out till I'm typing it in. And I, you know, it, every every project has a little bit of a different uh, process, mm. and I'm confused. I'm just mm -hmm. very, and I'm not, I'm struggling with what the process is, because I don't love typing it into a laptop. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not making me happy. Mm -hmm. You know, having a big, big pile of big paper made <laughs> that made me happy. <laughs> so what do I do? I don't know. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. That would be my <laughs> advice. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the process is still changing. And now I can lay out these scores and parts as PDFs and make a giant zip file and send it to somebody who does all the printing and taping and binding and all that stuff. Mm. But the uh, process keeps changing and it's not, I don't know, I'm still struggling with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how about... Uh, this is, I only answered part of your question because that was a big question. Yeah, it was a little too big, parts. actually. I should have uh, broken that down better. Yeah. <laughs> I forget the other part now. But. Talking about just the, the general scene in New York, but also, you know, maybe contrasting that to Los Angeles. I know you've had a lot of experience working in L.A. and, get, you know, just being yeah. around uh, uh, both major centers for, yeah. for a long time. I've worked there, and I have, I have, you know, a lot of friends in L.A. and so forth. I... Uh, it's not really my place. I'm a New Yorker, mm -hmm. and I was just saying something. I mean, try not to badmouth anybody, but you know, we just did this big, this big band record here at mm -hmm. Avatar A, um, and we've I've done projects like that in L.A. and they were good, but it I like the L.A. thing. I like the New York thing better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just feel like something about the musicians and the energy is just. But of course, there are great there are great musicians there and great studios there. And a different kind of a different level of mm -hmm. comfort. Mm -hmm. you, you drive up in your little rented Celica and the, <laughs> you know, the, get get your badge, and go in the studio. It's a different. It's a whole different experience. Of course, I, you know. Again, go back to the days when you know we had A and R Forty Eighth Street and A and R Seventh Avenue, and you step over the homeless people and go up in an <laughs> elevator that sounded like it was going to break on the way up, and sometimes did. And sometimes <laughs> did. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole nother, a whole nother issue. Is where we're you know we're talking about studios getting down to. I mean, Avatar is one of the Avatar. few remaining, and from what I hear, it's and for sale. Not long for the earth. For hopefully. sale. It and is, but MSR, which was Right Track, which was Legacy, is now out of business. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah, it's 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 pretty alarming. You know, I have a couple more questions that I won't take up uh, your whole afternoon, Rob. This has been so uh, just an amazing experience to hear your thoughts on things. One of the things that had totally amazes me about you is things can seem not chaotic is the wrong word, intense. Things can seem very intense in the studio, and you have this way of just being very centered and very calm. <laughs> and I know, I, I know, I can speak for my colleagues. There is, there are times when you'll walk out, and 
you might just say, you know, guys, we really got to get this in tune. It might be that simple mm. or calm, and you just feel like, oh, God, I let Rob down. This is like, <laughs> I got I to gotta get oh, this. Man. And it's just this, I was just, I mean, part of it, I think we all sense it from hearing you talk today. It's part of it's your personality. But um, I always find it to just be a very valuable lesson, the, the calm and, and quietness. Obviously, you're very intense, and, and the knowledge is is through and through there. But is that something that you consciously think about trying to remain calm and, and your approach, or is it just something that has come naturally to you through your Man, years of experience? I don't know. You said something about this, I, and I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that I appear calm, because I, mean, <laughs> I might not be. I mean, I might be a little stressed out mm -hmm. if there's something that people are not happy about. But I was thinking about that. You know, basically, when I think about those sessions that we just did with that great band, um, it's not hard for me to feel calm and act calm because I'm actually really happy. I'm like really happy to be there, really happy to be with all these musicians, like really happy to be doing this. And you know, while the music's happening, nothing else matters. I mean, the rest of the world just stops. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like life makes no sense. This human life of ours makes no sense. And it's frustrating until like, the music's happening and we're doing it and then everything makes sense for a while. <laughs> you know what I mean? It all makes sense. It's all working. It feels great. We're having a ball. Everybody's loving it. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just happy while it's going on. Um, I th I, there aren't that many... I can't think of that many sessions that have been real problems. Mm. That have been real, you know. Maybe uh, some sessions that I've just been called as a player or something and somebody else is in charge of making it all work um, and I see that it's not going well and there's not much I can do and it's mm -hmm. fortunately not my responsibility so I can just sit there and watch but I remember a huge session for a Japanese pop group called SMAP which is now going they're retiring those guys they, they were like a kind of like a boy group, like a oh, teenage boy group thing. Mm -hmm. Huge, huge J-pop thing. And they, they would come to New York and do enormous sessions, huge orchestras. And I had some stuff. And then they had like a couple young Japanese guys doing arrangements with this big string section. And they had written an arrangement. It was like one of those... You know, like Jerry Hay and the horn section would do it. Mm -hmm. you, you guys would mm -hmm. do it. It would be like no problem. Like you were on the uh, Billy Porter thing. Oh, yeah. Right, right. And we had some stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> this stuff is really fun. It's like that Jerry Hay style a little bit. Right. Horn section gets it. So violinists are not going to play that. Right. I mean, you got to really... And I've been through maybe three generations of string players since the late 70s. The younger players will go there a little more and, and get it, a little more, the rhythmic thing, the, the syncopated rhythmic thing. Mm -hmm. The older guys wouldn't do it at all, but really it's not friendly for string players. Mm -hmm. But probably the Japanese guys, they played it on samples. They played string samples and they loved it. <laughs> and so play it. And, it was, and it's a disaster because they can't, it's not for them. They can't do it. Mm -hmm. They're trying for an hour and a half to play four bars. They can't get it. You know, 
I've watched stuff like that happen, but that's why the stuff has to be right for them. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it can be a little bit fancy, but if it's too fancy, it's, it becomes unplayable and unrecordable. Mm -hmm. And it's a big problem. And a lot of people in the room, and like, you know, you just, you see money flying out the window. It's expensive. <laughs> yeah. You know? That's really uh, good advice for, uh, yeah. for anybody who's in that position. Of, I, uh, yeah. I can't think of any unhappy moments we had on the Brett Eldridge thing. It was just so much, oh, no, it's... So much fun. And, and Brett is a young guy, just turned 30 years old, was doing it just great, um, total natural. It was, and, and all of us were amazed, like he would just stand yeah. there and sing and sound, it's every, every take sounded like a, it could be the final Just final great, take. fun guy to work with. And of course, he came out in the room and he had, my favorite experience is when I'm sitting with five saxophones and eight brass and they're blowing right at me, loud. <laughs> they're playing these big crunchy chords, like all oh, the funny notes around and loud and like, it's like, oh man, it's like, uh, I don't, I don't know how, what to, dis I don't know what to compare it to. It's like this Olympic event. It's like having, it's like somebody like just put this most amazing big ice cream sundae in front of you, like boom, you're like, yes. And he, you know, he came out and heard that he was just, so well, well, they... that was really fun. I don't, you know, certainly don't remember any struggles. Yeah, that was, that was an incredible, uh session yeah. to say the least well they just added golf back to the olympics now maybe brass should be the next the new thing we'll add to the uh, yes. the tokyo olympics in swing. The... <laughs> gold medal and swing those about to swing salute you well rob i was wondering if we could uh, as we close out here i just kind of wanted to throw out uh, some names at you and just kind of mm. a rapid fire give me a sentence or two of your uh -oh. what first thing that comes to your mind all right uh, Try to say only nice things. <laughs> Let's start with uh, one that we, we touched on a little bit, but the great James Taylor. The greatest guy, just as great a guy as you would think he is from listening to his records. Really wonderful guy. A very funny guy, extremely smart, interested in a million things. Worked on a Christmas record with him years ago, and we started talking about what really happened at the Salem Witch Trials. You ever hear that story? <laughs> no why those poor girls went nuts because they think maybe it was moldy wheat because they had a warm winter and the wheat got ergotism and it was so they were tripping. This was a wow. scientific American James Taylor was really into this and so was I. So it so was a great, you know, great. he's, he's the, the best. Uh, the late great Natalie Cole. Wow. Uh, genius did not skip a generation. Mm. In her case, it hit her father and it hit her just as hard. She was just ex uh, a great musician, extremely smart, great person. Really, really hurt to lose her too this past year. We, we did a wonderful album called Stardust. There were a number mm -hmm. of, I did stuff with Phil Ramone. I did me four or five big arrangements on it, uh, including one of my favorite things, a very sad live arrangement of He Was Too Good To Me. Rogers and Hart, mm -hmm. starring Wynton Marsalis, mm -hmm. live trumpet solo with live orchestra conducted with her singing. It was taped to. Mm -hmm. Check it out. It's really, if you want to cry, if you want to have a good wow. cry. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, she was, she was fantastic. And I remember doing um, 
It's the Dinah Washington thing. What a difference a day made. And Natalie's singing in the room with us, and David Fink is playing upright. And she gets to the last eight bars. It's heaven when you, you know, find romance on your menu. And she's showing us very subtly exactly where the pocket is. Remember David Fink going with this. <laughs> and smiling and saying, oh, it's going to be like this. Like when we listen to playback, we're going to really want to listen to her instead of trying to listen around her right. and see if we did okay. Because she was a super musician, you know. Awesome. She was something else. Shifting gears here, Madonna. Madonna, as a singer, I've always felt that she was an excellent dancer. <laughs> uh huh. Uh, but, but I want to tell you, I did a number one record with her, Crazy for You, and the oboe solos on the record were George Marge, and that was Madonna's idea, and it was a good idea. Wow. And Madonna said, This is for a movie. You know how there's always like an oboe solo or something in a movie? I said, Yeah. What about if we had like some oboe solos on this? Okay. And we called up George and I had like some manuscript paper and a pencil and I like wrote these little lines, you know. Little far away lyrical oboe lines and George came and played. Of course, he was one of the great ones and that was... But that was Madonna's idea. That was a good idea. Wow. Great story. Bert Bacharach. Well, legendary. Um... Got to know him a little bit. I worked with him and Elvis Costello on that record that, that they did. And then another real high point for me was going with Phil Ramon to um, the White House and doing the concert in the East Room for the Obamas and Bert and um, Hal David's wife, Eunice, was, was there. Hal was ill and he died not long after. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bert was quite an amazing guy, one of a kind. And we performed with a lot of wonderful people, uh, most notably Stevie Wonder. Mm. And there's a great video on YouTube where we accompanied Stevie playing. He sang Alfie, and then he picks up the harmonica, makes a little modulation, and he plays the whole song on the harmonica. And we accompany him. Rubato, the whole thing is cola voce kind of. And I'm watching Stevie's back. I'm trying to play the roads and sort of conduct the band. That was, we're sweating bullets, but that was a really great moment. And of course, being on stage with Stevie, the singers are just, they're, you know, he's kind of like a, a god that walks among us a little bit to a lot sure. of all the musicians and the singers. So it, it was pretty wonderful. Very cool. And I think uh, Bert was very happy. Here's one that uh, I had, I remember this session very vividly, and, uh, and I saw it on, on your list of credits, which is great. But Lyle Lovett, and in particular, the oh, chart yeah. you did on Summerwind, which I think rivals Were you on the. That? I was, yeah. That was really so fun. Long ago. I, mean, I remember I, thinking this is as good as the Sinatra chart. And, uh, with with Russ Teitelman. Yep. Um, yeah, that was really fun. And I love Lyle, and he's just the greatest guy. And he, mm. he loved the chart, and he. He sounded great. I remember he was just yeah. like... He loved doing it. it. And we did it with kind of... It was a kind of a smallish... It was like 
imitation big band, there was only about seven horns. Mm -hmm. And then it was a, a string section of only violins and violas. Right? Strings were in the room with yeah, us. Yeah, they were. Yeah, I We did that. live strings, live rhythm, live horns. Yeah, it was very unusual. And it was only high strings kind of subdivided. It's kind of in the style of the old Sinatra record a little bit. I that just, was big fun. I remember being impressed that Lyle was there and singing and just yeah. digging in. And, and sound, Lyle was with great. us on the, on the Burt Bacharach thing, too. He sang uh, a couple things. Always something there to remind me, he sang. Mm. He did a duet with uh, Sheryl Crow, which was great. Mm. I'll Never Fall in Love Again, which was just great. And Sheryl Crow is another one. I love her. She's really great person, total pro. Yeah. Great. Well, let's shift a little bit to the instrumental side. That you did mm. a record uh, for Eddie Daniels called Blackwood, oh, yeah. oh, man. which I uh, I think was your tune was cruising. Is that one of your tunes? Cruise remember. or cruise? Yeah, it's I think it was cruise. the second tune. Yeah, that's that. my little tune. That's my little Love composition. That tune. There's but, another uh, one called P.I. Yeah, right. Yeah, private anyway, investigators. Like, talk about uh, working with Eddie a little bit. Who's uh, oh, an intense guy? Have oh, Eddie was great. Eddie was great. I love Eddie. I haven't seen him in a zillion years. Eddie, are you out there? <laughs> um, He's a wonderful guy. And that's interesting. You should bring him up because before that, there was a, he did a record called, I think it was called Morning Thunder. Mm, mm -hmm. It was on Columbia. Imagine, like Columbia Records, making a jazz clarinet record. <laughs> Imagine that getting signed today. It's like, what? You signed a jazz clarinet record? And I had some string section stuff, and I did a couple little string charts for him. And that's when I first met another of the great ones, George Colandrelli. Mm. Wow. And that's where I learned to steal from the best. <laughs> Picasso, supposedly Picasso said that, you know, a, a good artist borrows, a great artist steals. It's, it's ascribed to Picasso. Nobody knows if the, he actually said that. But I was on a session with Colandrelli and he put his thing up, and there was this beautiful melodic string music, and I like a big light bulb went on over my head. It, like it changed the way that I write for them. Hearing that one little chart of his. Said, oh, of course. <laughs> like you're writing a string arrangement, you write string music for them. Mm. You know, you don't write something that could be a horn section or it could be a keyboard part. It's, you know, it's. It's melodic music for violins and cellos. You know, it's, it, was, it was so beautiful. It was simple. Mm. It was simple and great. So, maestro, I've been ripping you off ever since <laughs> with no shame whatsoever. <laughs> and the last name, this one I didn't, I didn't know that you'd worked with her, but uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about yeah, working with Karen Carpenter. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I worked a lot with Phil Ramon on that last record that she made right before she died. Um, she was a great person. Everybody loved her. Um, she was funny. We were talking about this before. She's funny because she's kind of a, a, the good girl from Downey, California. Like, when the musicians cursed, she sort of blanched a little bit. <laughs> like, oh, please, those words bother me. But um, great, great person, extremely smart, um, great musician. Very good drummer, yeah. Which not everyone knows. Yeah. She didn't really know she she could sing. I mean, she was a drummer, and she discovered that she could sing, and she had that great, really low, buttery voice, and people just realized they loved it. 
So Nat King Cole was, you know, mm -hmm. he played, he was his piano player. He did, found out, oh, I guess I can sing. <laughs> I think Diana, I think her. Diana Krall, like, has a little bit of that. I really like mm -hmm. her playing a lot. Mm -hmm. And of lover singing too, but. And another person you've done a lot of work with. A little bit, not a lot, okay. a little, a mm -hmm. little. Um, she's great too, and, you know, she came at the singing part sideways. And so did Karen. Mm. Um, Richard did not like that record. And um, the record went on the shelf for 20 years, over 20 oh, really? years. Wow. Nobody heard it for 20 years. When it was finally released, decades after she died, um, it was stylistically, I think, dated. Mm. But she uh, recorded a song of mine. I haven't been a songwriter that much. There's a song called Guess I Just Lost My Head, which is an early song. I was about 24, and, uh, and she recorded my song. She liked it. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Well, Rob, I can't thank you enough for taking time out and for, again, thank you for inviting us into thank your you. beautiful home. And, uh, Thanks. I'm, and, uh, I'm honored to be one of the few non-brass players yeah. <laughs> on, your, on your long we, roster. We, we figured it's time to branch out a little, right. and we, we might as well start at the top and, right. uh, and well, go from there. Thanks. Just uh, real quick, like, what's the future hold for you? What are, your, um, what, what are your plans right now? And I'm sure part of it is keep doing the amazing work you're doing and what comes yeah, to you. And... Question mark. <laughs> Who knows? We're, we're going to Las Vegas to do a big show for Brett Eldridge on the, for TV, for his record. And I've got a big project for my, my friends, the Cincinnati Pops, mm. for a concert that's happening uh, at holiday time. Nice. That's one of the really great Pops orchestras. Cincinnati, yes. Almost, almost underrated in a way. Yes. So. And my, my, my friend, the maestro, John Morris Russell, is, a, is kind of a hard-driving entrepreneur impresario who's always thinking of new events and um, he's a great guy and uh, done some really interesting fun stuff with them um, very cool well yeah, so we will we will all be looking to see what uh, Rob Thanks. Mounty's next oh. uh, con contributions to our Thanks. to our world and it's, uh, it's a Kareen it's not a career it's, it's a Kareen it's an extraordinary Kareen then Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Try not to have any serious collisions. <laughs> there have been no fatalities. Rob, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thank you all, and I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. We will see you next time on Bone to Pick.